the book of Revelation, chapter 3. And tonight we'll take a look at the church in Philadelphia, verses 7 through 13. And if you need a Bible, you can just raise your hand and one will magically appear on your lap. Revelation chapter 3, picking up in verse 7. Jesus speaking. It says, Unto the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. The very nature of unconditional love is that it cannot have favorites. If love is unconditional, then by very definition, it exists without terms and conditions. That's why it's called unconditional love. And I'm thankful that the Father's love for each of us is that very brand of love, that it's unconditional. It's unmerited. It's not based upon our performance or what we say or what we do, but because God is love... His heart towards us is unconditional love. Now, that being said, though his love is unconditional, uncompromisingly so, there are qualities and attributes that a person or a church can possess that allow them to experience the power, the riches, the presence, the blessings of the Father in a fuller, more rich way, if you would. Not that he loves them more or favors them more, but yet there are things that have been cultivated within their lives that allow them to experience it or receive it to a fuller measure. As we come to the sixth of seven letters to seven churches here in this section of the book of Revelation, we come upon a group that possessed such characteristics it is by far the highlight of the seven churches that are listed here in the book of revelation it's the one that stands out as the trophy if you would the showcase of what a church can be and should be at its fullest and its best representation and it shows to us what is the highest calling and the highest privilege that a church can attain or those that are called among by his name. And the message that we take from this letter is to encourage us to pursue his fullness and his richness within our lives. The city of Philadelphia itself was located 140 miles inland from the Aegean Sea, also there in the modern-day region of Turkey. It was set in a very picturesque setting of hills and valleys. 
Unlike many of the other cities that we've seen and examined throughout our studies, there weren't very many natural defenses. There were no plateaus or mountains or natural fortresses through rock barricades. It was just a very beautiful, very simple place that the city was established. And from time to time, that caused problems for them because it wasn't very defensible and and there were issues and problems because of that. But the main thing that ultimately led to the decline in population of the city is that it was, for some reason, subject to severe and frequent earthquakes. And, And so people would, you know, kind of, you know, have their house broken up for the gazillionth time and they would... Find another place to live. But the thing that stands out as the most unique and the most significant, if you would, and especially concerning the message that Jesus gives to this church, the fact of this city is that unlike the other six that we read about, it's the only one that from the time of its inception, even to this present day, it is still a habitable city. Wherein all of the others are now just a pile of rubble and, you know, historical uh, monument or or something along those lines and something that we look back on as a has-been type of thing. Philadelphia uniquely has been a habitable place from its inception even until now. It has stood the test of time. It has lasted. And it's interesting to us, you know, that, that the, the quality that stands out as we read this letter that Jesus gave to this church is that they possess within themselves characteristics and attributes of a church that is built to last. It's interesting, isn't it? That Philadelphia has continued to exist as a habitation, even as this church is a church that has the ingredients of an everlasting habitation. Now, in all the other letters, Jesus addresses cracks and flaws that if they go unaddressed, that they'll ultimately result in the failure or the demise or the destruction of those churches. But here, Jesus commends this church and he reveals through what he says to this church, the kind of church or the kind of Christian that will last. And I don't know about you. But as I look around Christendom today, and as I hear the stories of saints and generations past and years gone by, I look in and I say, Lord, what is it that's going to cause us to last? What kind of things can we build into our lives or hold in place of high value in our hearts that will cause us to withstand the test of time so that when the trials come, when the pitfalls present themselves, We withstand, we hold on, and we make it through. That's what we want to be. In the 15th chapter of John, that famous chapter where Jesus spoke, it's only recorded in John's gospel. And he says to them that I am the vine and you are the branches. And he gives to them this illustration of what it means to be grafted into the vine and to receiving nourishment and fruitfulness from the roots, from the source talking about his people and their relationship to himself. In the eighth verse, Jesus says to us, he says, herein is my father glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so shall you be my disciples. That the will of Christ for each of us in our lives and for our church body collectively is that we be people that bear fruit, that our lives count, that they mean something, that they go further than just our attendance and our tithe and the bare minimum that we can give, but that there comes something out of it so much more than than what we ever could have thought or imagined. But it goes further than just bearing fruit just for a season. Because in the 16th verse of the same chapter, Jesus says, You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain. That it isn't enough that we just have a fruitful season, or that we have a time in our life where we can say, yeah, I was fruitful then, or I left my mark upon the kingdom of God, but that there be a fruit that remains, that's consistent, that's lasting, whether it be from our lives individually or from our church collectively. 
Our prayer, our hope is that we're fruitful and that our fruit is lasting. Now, the church in Philadelphia is an example to us of just that kind of a church. You know, it's interesting that in this, this letter, uh, to which there is no negative observation at all, Jesus has nothing negative to say to this church. Isn't it amazing how sometimes those can be the most convicting when we look at them? You know, we look at these other churches that had these huge problems, you know, Jezebel and, you know, major issues. And we just kind of go through them. But you come to something like this where they were really doing it right. And for some reason, that's what makes us look the worst, isn't it? Sometimes. But here we see this church that is an example to us of a church that is fruitful and that the fruit will remain. Now, in that this church is unique in its position, Jesus gives to them a unique salutation. Look at at verse 1 with me, or verse 7 it would be. He says, unto the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these things saith he that is holy, he that is true. He that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. Now, it's interesting. You know, Jesus gives to this church this very unique salutation. In all of the other letters, you know, the the, the letter to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamos and to Thyatira and to Sardis, in all of those letters... He addresses himself in some way that points to the problem that they had. You know, to Ephesus, he says that he's the one that walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Why? Because they forgot that he was in their midst. They had gotten so into the mechanics of doing church that they had left off to realize that he was the very object of their affection, or at least he was to be. So Jesus addresses himself as the one who's in the midst of the candlesticks. To Smyrna, he addresses himself as the first and the last that was dead and is alive because they were suffering. It's what they needed to hear in the situation that they were in. To Pergamus, he introduces himself as the one who has the sharp sword with two edges coming out of his mouth. Why? Because they were beginning to turn away from the word of God, from the sharpness, the life, the source of all power and authority and, and, and really fruitfulness within our lives. And so he addresses himself to their need. To Thyatira, he addresses himself as the one whose eyes and his feet are like fire that, you know, or, or brass that burns in a furnace. Why? Because they had turned so far that they were at the point where they faced judgment. So again, addressing himself to their need. And to Sardis that we looked at last time, you know, he addresses himself as the one who's, Uh, who has the seven spirits of God. Why? Because they left the power of God. They had gotten so enraptured in their own lives that the only thing left of their Christianity was the name Christian. There was no spiritual life left in them at all. And so Jesus says, listen, I'm the one that has the fullness of the life, the spirit of God, and I have it to give to you. And to all of those churches, he introduces himself according to their need. I am the one that can meet your need. But to this church, to which there is no revealed need, as we go through and look at the text, he doesn't address himself to their need, but rather he addresses himself to what they had. And and it's interesting to notice what that is as he opens and he says, these things saith, first of all, he that is holy. This church knew who Jesus was. They had a walk with him. They understood what it meant that he was holy. And they knew him to be who he was in the place that he was. What does it mean that he is holy? Holy, very simply, you know, we think of holy and we kind of get like this, you know, halo, uh, angelic music in the background, light, you know, coming out from the back kind of a thing. We get this vision of holy, but, but holy very simply just means separate. Set apart, separate from all else. One well-known theologian, I think it might have even been Alan Redpath, just recent history, uh, defined it this way. He said that there are only two things in all of the universe. One, that which is God, and two, everything else. That there are two things in the universe. God, on one hand, 
and everything else on the other. And it's a perfect way to define the holiness of God, that he is completely separate. He is completely outside of everything that this world is, everything that it offers, and everything that it represents. He is separate from it. He's set apart. And of all the things that exist upon the earth, whether it be things physically, the possessions that we have and hold dear to, or whether it be the circumstances of our lives, our jobs, or, or, or the positions that we hope to attain, or the things that we'd like to see happen within our future, or whether it be opportunities that we hope will present themselves to us, or even the relationships that we have with other people and with this world in and of itself, all of those things encapsulate our life upon this earth. They're all things that exist apart from God. And all of those things that we have to some degree or another, they all have a degree or a place of priority within our lives. The amount of energy and thought life that we give to them, our possessions, our relationships, our circumstances, and all of that. And many of our lives, and I'm including myself, many times, God somehow just kind of takes a position somewhere in the slots with all of those other priorities. Well, you know, I have my family, and I have my job, and I have my, you know, hobbies and things that I like to do, and I have my ambitions and things I'd like to see happen within my life, and I have my relationship with my God. And we kind of always are shifting through and having these priority things and we're, we're kind of moving things around and trying to figure out the right way to live life so that we can get everything done and somehow maintain our balance so that nothing drops out. And believe me, it's completely normal. It's an absolutely normal thing. We spend all of our lives trying to shuffle schedules and get things done and taken care of. But somewhere along the way, If we continue, if you walk with the Lord, and if you pursue Him and desire to know Him, and you seek Him constantly, there's going to come a point in your life when you're going to realize, like this church here realized, like so many throughout the pages of Scripture and the chronicles of history have discovered, is that God doesn't belong anywhere on that list at all. He's holy. He's separate. I think of Jacob, you know, a man who was brought up in a Christian home. I mean, his father was, uh, you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I mean, he had a rich spiritual heritage. And he had a ton of truth that had been laid out upon him. And he had a sense of destiny of somewhere he was going. And he had a cognizance of this God that had called his grandfather Abraham and brought him into this land that he now lived in. But at the same time, he had his life. He was there growing up with his brother, with his parents in the land, and it was just life as usual. And he was, you know, learning the ins and outs of keeping sheep and kind of furthering the family business and life was going on. And yeah, he knew God. There was, there was that awareness that was there. But as life continued to complicate and his struggles began to arise within the family, And once his brother, you know, got to this thing where he wanted to kill him and Jacob found himself in flight and everything that he knew was kind of tossed up in the air as he was fleeing and heading for a land far away that he'd never been to before. One night out under the stars, he dreamed and he saw kind of the heavens open and a ladder that descended and the angels of God were ascending and descending upon it. And as he awoke from that, you know, half asleep, half awake position that he was in, he cried out and he said, oh, God is in this place and I knew it not. God is in this place and I knew it not. And something began to happen in the life of this man that had just been seeking to order his priorities previously. He was beginning to realize that all of what was happening, all of what had been, and all of what was coming was somehow being orchestrated by this God in the heavens that was so much greater, so much mightier, so much holier than what he had ever thought or imagined previously. Well, he gets where he's going, and again, life kind of picks up. He gets married, in fact, twice. And he has a couple of kids, in fact, 12 And things get a little crazy. And the business begins to grow. And the complications of life begin to multiply. 
And through the process of time, conflicts arise between him and his uncle and his, his cousins. And, and, and there's strife, and it's time for him to leave. And as he gathers his wife and all of the herds and flocks and the possessions that God had blessed him with there in that land, and he begins to move back south to the land of destiny where he was supposed to be. On his way back, he gets word, hey, your brother Esau, um, he's coming to meet you too, and he's got 400 men and he don't look happy. And another restless night was in store for this man Jacob. And as he was there, he sent you know, his wives and his kids ahead, and he separated himself a, a distance from them, and it says that he was up all night, and a man came and wrestled with him there. And we get the idea from reading the story that he was well aware of who this man was. And all night long they wrestled, and as the sun began to rise, the man, who was none other than Jesus Christ himself, the man said, the daylight is coming, it's time for me to go, let me go. And Jacob, holding on, said, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. I'm not going to let go until you bless me. And it says that the Lord touched the hollow of his thigh, this part of his leg right here. And it says that the muscle shrank. And yet he held on. He said, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. And the Lord said, what's your name? Jacob. Your name is no longer Jacob. Your name is Israel. Governed by God is what it means. And it says that, that for the rest of Jacob's life, that muscle was shrunken and that he needed a cane, that he needed to lean upon something other than his own strength for the rest of his life. But did you hear what happened in that interaction? Here, this man that had been blessed, he had a rich and full family. He had a future and a heritage that was laid out for generations, literally thousands of years. He was blessed with possessions of sheep and herds and flocks and, you know, material things beyond what anyone of us could ever imagine. And yet there was something that he realized there that night as he wrestled with the Lord is that all of that means nothing unless you bless me. You bless me. I've got everything that this world can offer. And yet I'm empty. I'm here. I'm fleeing for my life from my uncle on the one side. I'm scared of my brother coming from the other. And everything that this world has dealt me has left me hollow and empty. And I'm not going to let go until you bless me. And something happened in his life as he began to realize he's holy. He's holy. He's completely separate from everything that this world is or will ever be or will ever offer. And that there is nothing of any value or any worth outside and apart from him. He himself is the very fountain of where all life comes from. He's holy. And here Jesus looks at this church that was realizing this. That was enjoying this. And he says, these things saith he that is holy. The one who is separate, apart from all other things. And the one that will give you the source of all life. He says, I'm holy than everything, or, you know, it's better, worth more than all else. I would encourage you tonight, if you don't know the God who is holy, that you would ask him to reveal himself to you. That you would ask him to come to you in such a way as he came to Jacob, and to, in the middle of the chaos of all of life, just lift away the veil and show you his greatness and his power and his glory, and that there might be a separation in your heart between the priorities that include God And that he would become separate, holy, apart from all of that and rule over your lives completely. Well, he goes on and he says, these things saith he that is holy and he that is true. He that is true. Do you ever get sick of being lied to? Isn't it? Isn't it insane? Am I the only one that that I'm just sick and tired of being lied to? I mean, you listen to, you know, the radio and the the advertisements come on and they just make you grit your teeth because you know that you're just being lied to. Oh, I'm going to save hundreds of dollars, really. Really, you're you're so kind and 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 compassionate and philanthropic, you know, whatever that that you're that you're going to reach into your pocket and save me hundreds of dollars. Really, I'm going to win in this deal. Wow, that's so great. 
You know, you hear these things. You, you listen to the, the politicians and the promises that they make and the things that they're going to do. You know, $3.7 trillion in deficit spending, but we're not going to borrow any money to do it. And you just, you're lying to me outrightly. You know, recently, uh, you know, we had to we had to replace our minivan, you know, for our family. And so, oh, I hope you never have to do that, you know, even though I know you're going to have to at some point, you know. But it was terrible. You know, we're going all over the place. And, and I mean, I don't know if the reputation of car salesmen, I, I don't know. But, but, you know, we're responding to these ads. And so we found this whole, like, slew of, of vans that we could go look at down in New Jersey. And there was one that we were like, this might be the one. You know, the price was right. The, everything was right about it you know so so we go to to this dealer and you know the 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 main car dealer is not there so we came back you know uh, a little bit later and and we had called and we said you know what's the deal can can we get it for this and the guy says oh we don't talk about price over the phone come in so we're like all right we'll go in so we go in and we're like all right so we see the ad and we you know we're there this is the ad this is the advertised price and 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 yeah you know we like the van we'll we'll buy it for that price and the guy sits down with us and he goes okay and he pulls out this like piece of paper with like a million words on it, and you can't read any of them. And then he says, right here, he says, it says that that price is only good if you buy an extended warranty. And I said, okay, how much is the extended warranty? And he goes, ah, good deal. He goes, $2,300. I'm like, liar, you know, and he's just like, lies, lies, everything is just lies. Whatever it takes to try to get you to do what, you, what they want you to do. Make this commitment and you'll become this. All these things. The sad thing is when that kind of mentality of just saying what you have to say in order to keep the peace or to get people to do what you want them to do. When that begins to creep into the church, that's a sad thing. And yet it happens, doesn't it? I mean, you go to a church and you just kind of want to figure out maybe what's this church all about? What do these people really believe? And so you get and you read the statement of faith and you begin looking at the beliefs of the church. Well, hey, we believe in the lordship of Jesus Christ. This is great. And giving him the, the place of highest honor within our lives. Well, we agree with that. That's good. We want to worship him in spirit and in truth. We want to reach the lost with the gospel of Christ and see this world change. And we say, amen, this is right on. But then you begin to attend that church for a while. And after a while, you begin to realize that maybe that's not really the priority and the reason for that church's existence at all. You begin to see through the lines a little bit and you begin to realize that, hey, these people are not about those things. They're about money. These people just want to make money. They, the, the, all of what they're saying in, in, in the deepest core and the root of it all is that they just want, want money. That's it. That's why they're doing this. Or you realize that they're all just about membership. They want an article written up about them in Christianity Today or in you know the, 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 the church growth periodicals or whatever it is. And, and everything that they're doing is somehow bent or aimed or with some agenda of trying to just fill the place overflowing, packed out so that they can boast of a great membership. Or they want to have a reputation or they want to maybe exercise power over people. That there's an authoritarian spirit there where, you know, this hyper-shepherding type of thing. And and that you realize that this statement of faith is a smokescreen. It isn't even real. It's not true. And that's why there's so many people that maybe they have no problem with Christ. But they have a big problem with the church. Because they realize that the church, they're liars. They're hypocrites. They say one thing, but it's not really true underneath the surface. You know what the good news is? Is that Jesus Christ can look at this group of people and he can say, I am true. And that Jesus can look at you. He can look at me, weary of hearing lies. And he can say, there's never going to be another source that you're going to find in all of your life where there won't be some mixed motive or false agenda or undercurrent reality that wasn't broadcast at the beginning but with me it is what it is it's absolutely true 
that who he is is laid out before us in pure, transparent light in the pages of Scripture. And that it's all true. Every word of it is true. He's got no agenda. He's not telling us it so that we will be then give our allegiance to him so that he can then come around with what he really means and what he really wants, but he lays it out. He says, you are my friends, and I lay down my life for my friends. And he backed it up in that while we were yet his enemies, he died for us. That what he does within our lives is clearly told to us in the pages of Scripture, and it's clearly demonstrated in the lives of those that walked with him in years past. The hope that he gives is real and sure, and it's freely given, and it grows over time. It becomes brighter and brighter. It doesn't get dimmer and dimmer. And the salvation and the love that he gives doesn't require us to buy some extended warranty in order for us to have it. That he is absolutely true. And not only is he true, but the Bible goes further than that. And it says that he is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or even think. That that's his heart and his mind towards us. The Bible says that there are no words to describe the glory that is awaiting us in his kingdom that is to come. Paul said it in 2 Corinthians 11 and 12. He said that I was caught up into the third heavens and I saw things that he says were unspeakable, literally without words. That there was no words, there's there's no way to communicate it in the boundaries of human language, the glory that I saw. It's an unspeakable glory. His promise and his person is absolutely true. And to any person or church that discovers this reality, you'll find with it the greatest treasure and source of life and power that exists. That he is absolutely true and every word of God is true. And it can't be found in any earthen source. There's no person that will ever be true to you like Jesus will be true. There's no possession that promises you some element of ease or place of peace within your heart. There's no possession that will ever be able to satisfy that longing that he says to you that he'll satisfy and he is true. There's no situation that you can have within your life that will ever content you. But Jesus, who is true, he says, I am all things and I fill all things. I'm the one who is all in all and everything else will fail, but Jesus will never fail. And he says to this church, he says, I know that you know this, that you've discovered that I'm holy and you've discovered that I'm true, that you can build your life upon me, that you can believe my promises and my word and you'll never be disappointed in those things. Notice the third thing that Jesus says, just by way of introduction, we're doing great, aren't we moving right along? (laughs) He says, he that hath the key of David. He that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. And you say, well, what in the world is this? What does it mean that he has the key of David? Well, some have tried to link this in some generic way to the promise that God made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. You know, when, when David wanted to build the temple and God said, you know, you've got blood on your hands. You can't build me a house, but I'll tell you what, David, I'm going to build you a house. And some have tried to kind of link this sentence to that passage there, but it doesn't really work. You kind of got to make the puzzle pieces squish in if you want to do that. Other people have tried to link it to a verse in the Kings that talks about uh, a man named Eliakim, who's told that he will be given the keys to the house of David. Oh, okay, well, you know, we found keys and David in the same verse, so we'll try to make that fit, and so you kind of squish the puzzle pieces in. But listen, that's not what it says. It says the key of David. I'll give to you the key of David, or that he says that I have the key of David, I open and no man shuts, and I shut and no man opens. So what does this mean, this concept of the key of David that opens the door? And I believe that this sentence, this phrase that Jesus uses here as he opens his address to this church comes at the very core of what God would have us to see tonight. And what was the secret of this church's success and blessing? What is it? What is this key of David that Jesus possesses, that he holds up for us to see tonight? When Israel asked for a king, We're going way back, and I'm not going to lay the background because we don't have time. But they said, give us a king. 
And the Lord raised up this man, Saul. And the Bible says that he was head and shoulders above all the other people. That he was something to see, something to behold. He was a man of great stature and, you know, pomp and, and at first humility. And he seemed like the perfect man for the job, that he would fit the bill. He would be the man that would be able to lead Israel triumphantly. But the problem was, is that underneath it all, after he had reigned for a couple of years, and what was on the inside began to work its way out, it was revealed that he was a man of great ambition and not the godly sort. That he was a man of great pride, unable to let go and relinquish and allow other people to maybe receive glory or applause within his kingdom. He was a man of great insecurity. He was a very selfish man, this man Saul, who appeared so great on the outside, but inwardly wasn't. We find that he was a man of great instability, madness, if you would. And ultimately, he failed. He wasn't able to continue and to finish the work that God had laid out before him because of these inconsistencies within his heart. But it wasn't the end of Israel's hopes for a good king because God spoke to Samuel, the prophet the last of the judges. And he said, Samuel, go to Bethlehem, to the house of Jesse, because I found me a man among his sons who is according or after my heart, who will perform all my counsel. And so Samuel goes to Bethlehem and he goes to the house of Jesse and there the seven older brothers of David pass before him and the Lord says, no, that's not them. And then the youngest This man who is described as a ruddy, red-headed kid who is rough around the edges. Just a youth who kept the sheep and had a guitar or a lute slung around his neck. And as he came in there and he was anointed and God said, that's the one. He's the one. He's the one who's after my own heart. The Bible tells us that he was young. The Bible tells us and alludes that maybe he was a man that possessed a a bit of pride. That he was apt to find himself in a, in a mischievous spot here and there. We hear the words of his brothers there as he was in the field. He was a man of weaknesses and flaws, as we see later in life coming out. He wasn't a man who was perfect by any stretch. In fact, behaviorally, he was worse than Saul. But there was one thing that young David possessed that no one else in Israel, and maybe no one else since him, possessed in the same degree. And that is that he had a heart that was perfectly after and inclined towards the Lord. He had a passionate love for and devotion towards God. He was a worshiper, a lover, and a follower of God. And this is the key of David. Now, realize these things, these hearts the kind that are inclined after the Lord, the kind that David possessed, they don't come naturally. There's no one that's born and they just have the right heart. That God's like, ah, you know, give them a dirty heart, you know, and give them a good one. It doesn't happen that way. A heart that is inclined to the things of God is something that's cultivated. It's something that's attached to the vine. It's something that draws from the source and the well of his life and is conformed into that image over time. And that's the man that David was. See, when he was in the field keeping the sheep, it wasn't with a watchful eye of what his older brothers were doing in hopes that he would attain to their greatness. It wasn't a man who was observing the political spectrum of Israel, hoping that one day he would become something in their cabinet, in their policies, in the kingdom. He was a man who was there as he was out watching the sheep. His heart was inclined to know this God. He was drawn away. His his mind and his heart, his mouth was given to the singing of his praises. And over time, as God began to work in his life, his heart began to melt and mold, and he became a man after God's own heart. And this heart that David had, in many ways, in every way, became the key that Jesus is referring to as he says, the key of David. Because look what happens in David's life, this man who was after God's own heart. You know what happens? Is that doors begin to open before him. He's sent by his father into the battle to see how his brothers are doing, to just bring them some provisions and bring a report back. And the next thing you know, nine foot six Goliath is falling down and his head is coming off. And this young, ruddy youth is carrying a 25 pound head, 25 miles back into the city. 
And then the door opens and David is brought into the palace. And there in the palace, he is, you know, brought before Saul and he becomes the worship leader, if you would. The one who would play before Saul, given a position of great prominence right next to the king. How could this youth, this young little shepherd boy who's nobody in Israel, all of a sudden find himself in the palace? Well, somehow God opened a door and got him in. We see that as time went by, the door opened for him to lead a battalion and he became a successful warrior. The women would chant and say, Saul has slain his thousands, but David, his tens of thousands. This warrior, this mighty man before his God. And the Bible tells us that God gave him great wisdom and great favor with the people. It just seemed like door after door after door was opening before this young man, David. He was delivered and preserved from the maddened Saul who wanted him dead because he feared for his kingdom. He was made and forged by God into a man who became a great leader in Israel. And he ultimately was exalted in the place of king. God opened the door for him to be the ruler of the unified kingdom of Israel at its height and at the prime of its existence. And he went down historically as the man who is the greatest king that Israel has ever known. A man whom his whole life, door after door after door were open. It just seemed that he had this this key. And that somehow these opportunities kept presenting himself to him. And he was able to succeed time after time and again and again. Well, what was this key? It all comes back to David's disposition at the young age. He declared with his heart, I want to know this God. He wasn't looking for any of that to happen. It was never in the wildest of his ambitions that he would someday be the king of the nation. But he was content to serve and to love and to worship and know this God that he had been told about. He never thought that he would be king. He had eight brothers. I mean, you hear Bobby's stories about what it was like to have to be growing up in that. It's chaos. It's crazy. And yet here's this young man who, with no ambition and no hope that anything would happen, loving God, just a shepherd. And yet one day he became the king. When a person, when a church comes into this place where no longer are they seeking ambitiously to try to become something or use God to try to get something, but rather they just simply love God for who he is. It's then that you begin to discover this key that David had. When sincerely, with no other motive, you just want Christ and nothing else, you find that you too possess this key, or rather the God who holds the key. Notice that Jesus says to them there in in verse 7 that he is the one that opens and no man closes. And he closes and no man opens. When you think about David's life, that's exactly the way it happened. The door opened for him to become the hero with Goliath and then to go to the palace and then to become Saul's son-in-law. And then, you know, in Ziklag and then uh, to become the king. And, 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 you know, over and over again, all of these things keep happening, even to the point where God said to David that if that hadn't been enough, I would have given you whatever else you wanted as well. Now, naturally, when we hear these things, our ears begin to perk up. Because if someone began to talk to me about the magic key, that just doors begin to open, I would say, really? Tell me more about this key. I'm interested. Your ideas are intriguing to me. What is this that you're speaking of? We edge a little bit closer in our seats. We give a little bit more attention. What's he going to say next? But do you notice here who it is that opens and closes the doors? Jesus says, I'm the one that opens And no man shuts, and I shut, and no man opens. He's the one that's in control of the door. Logically speaking, from a worldly standpoint, the last person in Israel that anyone would ever expect to be the greatest king in all their history was a little shepherd boy from Israel or from Bethlehem. He had no resume, no credentials, no experience, nothing at all that could ever be presented in this world's courts as something that would make him stand up as a great leader. The last person you would ever choose to be the greatest leader that Egypt has ever seen, certainly it isn't this guy that, Mubarak, you know. But you'd never think that it would be an uneducated Hebrew slave, a prisoner accused of rape, 
with absolutely no credentials, an immigrant, if you would. And yet the one who holds the key opened the door before him, and Joseph became the greatest prime minister Egypt has ever seen. Scanning the profile of resumes, you would never even pick up those of the 12 apostles that Jesus chose. Fishermen, tax collectors, common blue-collar nobodies from the land of Israel. And yet Jesus, as he beheld them, he saw something so much greater that there was something in their heart that they were inclined to love God for God. And he chose them, and they became the pillars upon which he would build his church. Or the resume of Paul, the author of much of the New Testament. But listen, church, when God opens the door, no man can close it. And when God closes the door, no man can open it. He's the one that's in control and in charge of all these things. It's interesting, you know, many of us, we feel like our, our story is that we're the captain of the closed door, right? He's the one that holds the key. But look what Jesus says to them in verse 8. He says to this church, Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it, for thou hast a little strength and hast kept my word and hast not denied my name. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. What is it that Jesus sees in this group, in this city, at this time, that causes him to say that I will open the doors before you? He tells them as he goes on, number one, and we are almost, well, we're not really almost finished, but we're going to be almost finished. The first thing that Jesus sees in this church is that they were a church, a people that were relying completely upon him. He says to them, first of all, you have a little strength. Now, in Paul's first letter to Corinth, he goes to great lengths there to draw a contrast between the world's strength and the Lord's strength. And we don't have time to, to go there and look at it, but he basically says to them that, that the, the wisdom of this world is foolishness to God, and the, the weak things of God are strong in, in the eyes, uh, or, you know, they're weak in the eyes of men, but they're strong in the things of God. 1 Corinthians one twenty seven says that God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise and the weak things of the world to confound the things that are mighty that no flesh should glory in his sight. And then he goes on to tell them that he himself came to them in weakness and in fear and in trembling so that their faith would not stand in the wisdom of men but in the power of God. Because he said that the kingdom of God is not in word but in power. And he talks to them about how in weakness, God's strength is magnified. In his second letter to the Corinthians, in talking about the abundance of the revelations and the visions that he'd been given, he talks about a thorn that was given to him in his flesh, a messenger of Satan that was given to buffet him, lest he should be puffed up and lifted up in pride above measure because of all that God had shown him. And he said, three times I besought the Lord that he would remove it from me. But the answer was the same. God spoke and said, my grace is sufficient for you. Listen, for my strength is made perfect in your weakness. And Paul said, I will verily, therefore, most gladly boast in my infirmities. Because when I am weak, then what? I'm strong. This Word that Jesus gives to this church that you have a little strength is a badge of honor that they held. Because outwardly, though they seemed small and famished, inwardly they were being revived and renewed, infused with the life of Christ because in their weakness his strength was being magnified. Inwardly they were thriving and experiencing his life and power in a rich way. Next week, we're going to look at a church that was thriving on the outside, and yet Jesus said he wanted to vomit them out of his mouth. Because he doesn't rejoice in the strength that we have outwardly, but rather the weakness that we have causes us to depend upon and rely upon him, and his strength is able to be magnified through that. And this church in Philadelphia was leaning heavily upon the Lord, and it contributed to the power that they were experiencing. Let me ask you, are you a self-sufficient person? 
Can you make it through your day without leaning upon the Lord? You know how you know? What do you do first thing in the morning when you roll out of bed and get yourself ready to go? Do you find yourself falling upon your knees and saying, God, I need your help today. I need your strength. I can't do this on my own. To be quite honest, many days, many times I have my routine and I neglect to find him there in that secret place. But the one who will be blessed and will see God's power in his life is the one who will confess openly and say, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Lord, help me today. I can't do these things on my own. Lord, I can't get through this day. I can't do this job. I need your strength in this class. Lord, I need wisdom with these kids. Lord, this task is daunting that's before me. My future, Lord, I need your help. Don't be a person who's too strong to call upon the name of the Lord. This church was strong because they were weak. They leaned upon the Lord. The second thing that he says to them is that they kept his word. He says, you have a little strength and you have kept my word. Now, I know that I don't need to elaborate to you on how God feels about his word. I mean, if you've been here at all, I mean, you've heard all of these things. Jeremiah 23, 29, God says, Is not my word like a fire that, and, and like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces? Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing asunder between, you know, these things. Uh, again, Psalm 138, verse 2. He says, thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. The word is likened unto bread, our water, our anchor that holds us stable. The sword of our defense, the lamp and the light for our path and our feet. The truth that sets us free and the well that satisfies us. And on and on and on. All of these things, the word of God is likened unto in this this manner. But what Philadelphia had. That even many Bible-believing, you know, Scripture-quoting people maybe don't have, is that Jesus says, you have kept my word. He, He doesn't just simply say that you've believed it, or that you've heard it, or you've ascribed to it, or you've studied it, or you you made notes, or circled, highlighted, argued it. You know, he didn't, he doesn't say any of those. He says you've kept it. That you've carefully applied it to your lives, and heeded its commands and its precepts, and you've allowed these things to shape who you've become. The word kept implies that these people were not simply hearers of the word, but that they were doers of the word. And that the fruit that was being produced within their lives was the result of this action that they were partaking in because of what the word of God was doing within them. They didn't just entertain it audibly and let it tickle them intellectually, but rather they were doers of it practically, careful to yield to its convicting light and to obey the precepts given through it. But most of all, their purpose in holding on to this word and keeping close to it was so that they would know this God. They wanted Him. They wanted to know Him. See, there's some people, they'll study the Bible and they know the Bible, maybe backwards, forwards, highlighted. But their reason for doing it is because they really like to study biblical doctrine. It's kind of a hobby to them. Some people study or keep the word, if you would, because they want to argue, you know, with skeptics and with cults. You know, they want to put the Mormons in their place and send the Jehovah's Witnesses down the road, you know. And so they'll study to answer and they they just love finding and digging out the truth. And so they'll study it. But it's not to know God. It's to know information, to have something to answer. They'll do it maybe to obtain promises or blessings. They like the things that it says, and so they'll read it because they want the promises. They want the blessings. There's some that study the Bible just to teach it. What was that? I didn't see that. So I feel lately. There's some that study the Bible just because they like to uncover the secrets. They want to know the, the deep things. They want to see how it all ties together. You know, the, the law and, and the letters and the jots and the tittles and all of that. And all of that's good. I'm not discouraging any of that. All of that is excellent. But by and large, many times when you find people like that, mainly you find hearers of the word. And much less apt are those types of people to be doers of the word. 
James, and we all know the exhortation, James talks about those that are hearers of the word and not doers of it. But he says those that are doers of the word will be blessed in their deed. See, it's, it's one thing just to hear it, but when you say, Lord, apply it to my life, it means something so much more because it means that what you're seeking in your study of the Bible is not simply the knowledge of something, but rather you're seeking the knowledge of God. I want to know him. I want to know his love. Jesus said that this would be in John chapter 15, verses 9 and 10. He said, as the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. If you keep my commandments, listen, if you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love. Even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. That the evidence of whether or not you really love the Lord and your pursuit of his word is because you want to know him. It's all known by whether or not you keep his commands. If you're simply a hearer of the word, then your motive for studying it may be amiss. But if your pursuit of the word is so that you might know his love within your life, then you are a pursuer of God. And to you, he will say, you have kept my word. Not simply read it or studied it, but you've loved it because you've loved me. And the result of this within your life will be what the psalmist declares in Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, his command, his word, doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. That brings forth his fruit in due season. His leaf also will not wither. And listen. Whatsoever he doeth. Shall prosper. Sounds like the key doesn't it? But it's not the person who simply hears it. It's the person that keeps it. That will be blessed in his deed. Jesus commends this church. That they were keepers of his word. And then third, he says that you have not denied my name. Now, I'm not going to elaborate on that because nobody who keeps his word can rightly or quickly deny his name. But what are the blessings that are attached? We've already seen that he's given them an open door. The second thing that is a blessing to a church or an individual that operates this way is that he will silence your enemies and cause them to see God's favor upon your life. Look at verse 9. He says, Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. Isn't that a great promise? Because listen, if you walk with the Lord and you want to know him in a fuller way, you're going to have enemies. Because by very nature of the direction you're going, you're walking in the opposite course that this world is going in. And that's going to grate against people, especially when they see the blessing of God upon your life. Because you're not doing it their way. You're not following the, the prescribed procedure of elevating oneself in a worldly situation, and yet somehow you're being promoted. And it's going to create and cause enemies. Jesus said this would happen. He says, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. And he says, marvel not that the world hates you. But in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 7, it says that if a man's ways please the Lord, even his enemies will be at peace with him. I love that. My favorite, though, is Second Thessalonians. No, it's, I think it's Second Thessalonians one six. It says that it is a righteous thing with God to repay tribulation upon those that trouble you. I'm not supposed to. That's not supposed to be my favorite, but for some reason I find myself remembering that one so easily. You know, get them, Lord. You know. <laughs> but notice what Jesus says to them here. He says that I will make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. They're going to see my favor and my blessing upon your life. Notice what else Jesus will do to a person or a church that operates this way. In verse 10, it says that he'll shield them from tribulation. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Now, 
you know, we will see and we do see in this a, a very clear reference to the rapture and the tribulation that's coming upon this earth by and large. And we'll get into that more, not next week, but the week after that. But to this church that he was speaking to locally and on a very practical standpoint, what he's saying to them is that to those that love me and to those that are keepers of my word and those that are reliers upon me, I'm going to shield you from tribulation. Now, don't get me wrong. There's a certain amount of tribulation that's inescapable. You can't get away from it. Jesus said that the rain falls on the just and the unjust. The sun shines on the just and the unjust. Both of those things are good and bad. And there's a certain amount of just darkness that all of us are going to face just because we're human. But it is true that to those that love the Lord, he shields you from so much. And you look at what's going on in the world out there and you see the fear in people's faces. And you see the despair that they're in. Or you watch the shipwreck that they're under as their family is assaulted by, you know, just wickedness in some way. Or children just go crazy off the deep end. And you see all these things happening. And to know how much he's got an umbrella over us of the things that could be happening to us. You know, so often I think, I think it's been like eight years now I've been driving down to, for the first four it was Lower Westchester, for the last four it's been to the city. And, you know, you take it for granted, but in all that time I've never wrecked, you know, uh, Lord, please, I'm not boasting, I don't take it for granted, you know, you'll hear about it tomorrow or something, right? But, but I just think about all the things that could have happened in all those years and all those miles, and yet he keeps me, shields me. You know, and you, you take for granted the, the stuff that God just does for you. But it says that to those that love him, so those that rely upon him will shield you from the tribulation that otherwise might overtake you. And then in verse 11, he gives to them a warning. He says, behold, I come quickly. Hold fast, which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Beware, church. Beware, God lover. That even though, and, and you even see it in the life of David, this man who loved God passionately and worshipped him wholeheartedly, his crown was somewhat corrupted, wasn't it? Second Samuel chapter 12. At that inopportune moment, his defenses were down. And it can happen to anyone. And the warning is clear. Jesus says, behold, keep things in perspective. Live for heaven. Understand that I'm coming and hold on to what you have. Because if you let go even for a minute, you may find that it's stripped out of your grasp. But then in verse 12 this eternal motivation is closing. He says, him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God. He says, the strength that you lack right now, you will soon possess. You'll trade the weakness that you're experiencing physically for an eternal strength as I make you the pillar of my structure in the heavens. A pillar in the temple of my God. And he will go out no more and I will write upon him the name of my God, in the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. Now, think with me. We're closing. I've gone way too long. I'm sorry. I love you. Please don't throw rocks at me. But listen, listen. If you were getting your showcases, right, and, and, and you were going to you know, get your heavenly reward, and this is it. You know, Lord, I've served you. I've suffered. I've been through the fire. I've got the battle scars on me. And here I am, Lord. I'm here for my reward. And he says, I'm going to give it to you. Come forward. And there he is. And he pulls out a pen. And he says, hold out your arm, son. And he writes his name on your arm. And then he writes the name of the city of his God on the other arm. And he writes the, his new name maybe somewhere else on you. you know, now, I'm speaking in a completely worldly sense, but I'm, I'm going to make a point. So don't think I'm like bordering blasphemy or anything. We might be like, okay, all right, great tattoo, you know. But listen, when you think about heaven, when you think about glory, when you think about eternity, what is it that gets you excited? You think about the peace and the rest, the end of chaos that we experience in, you know, the Northeast United States in 2011? Do you think about the ceasing of the trials and the tribulations that we face? 
The end of the struggle with the world and the flesh and the devil, you know, all this garbage that we have to face constantly. Do you think about the newness of it? That it's just going to be new. It's going to be fresh start. It's going to be eternal. That it'll go on forever and ever. Glory unspeakable. Do you think about, you know, the, the crowns, the cities, the rewards, the things that we'll be honored with, or the things that we'll possess when we get there? What is it that you think about when you think about the glory of heaven? This church, the church in Philadelphia, the people to whom Jesus is addressing here, to them, the treasure of heaven was Christ himself. That's what they wanted. They could care less about gold streets or houses of jewels or eternal rewards. None of that meant anything to them. They had been saved by grace through faith. They had traded places, their guilt for his innocence, their filth for his treasure, his reward. And everything in all of their affection was aimed at and centered upon him. That's what they wanted. And so for him to look at them and say, I'm going to write my name upon you. You're going to know me even as I know you. You'll know even as you're known. You see through a glass darkly, but you're going to see face to face. And you're going to know me. You'll be a pillar in the temple of my God. You'll go out no more. And you'll be right close in my presence. That was the most encouraging word that this church could ever hear. Because that's what they were living for. It wasn't for the material of what heaven would be or anything else. It was about the king. The monarch, if you would, of heaven. That's what they were living for. And it was this church that reached the highest of all ambitions of Christianity. In the beginning of our study, as we close and the worship team can come, I said to you that unconditional love by very nature comes without terms and conditions and that it plays absolutely no favorites. But that there are qualities and attributes that a person or a church can have that can allow them to experience God's fullness in a greater or richer way. I want to challenge you tonight as we look at this church. Just ask you this question I've asked you before. Why are you following Christ? Why are you a Christian here? Is God an end? Or is God a means to an end? Are you following him for him because of who he is and what he's done? Or because of what you'll get from him and what maybe he'll do in your life if you do? Because the key of David, all this stuff that we're talking about tonight, it's all about him. Loving him for him. What is it that you're seeking? Is he enough even if your worldly hopes are never realized? It's a question we should ask ourselves and ponder. Are you cultivating a closer walk with him? Are you drawing from the vine? Drinking from his well? This letter, this letter to the church in Philadelphia, the lesson that it gives to us, it tells us to be the kind of Christian that Christ can reveal himself to. Not the one who always needs correction or restoration like we saw in all the other epistles rather the one that can receive revelation of him because you're passionate in your relationship with him. That's his will for our lives. That's where joy and peace is found. That's where life and abundance exist. It's in his presence. Not in his possessions, but in his person. In Jesus' name, let's all stand. Father, we pray that you would give us wisdom, that you'd give us ears to hear, and that you'd help us, Lord, to Walk in this high and worthy calling that we have. Your sons and your daughters. Teach us, Lord. We repent, Lord, where we've gone astray. Where we've sought for our own rather than yours. Or what we'll get rather than just who you are. We ask that you would order our hearts aright tonight. That we might be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen.